0: In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton imagines an an English yachtsman who sails off from England to discover new lands. He leaves England, eventually sights and lands on what he thought was a new island he had discovered in the South Seas. He, He came ashore, Chesterton says, armed to the teeth. And plants the British flag on that island, only to realize he had slightly miscalculated his course and had in fact discovered England. <laughs> Chesterton goes on to say, I am that man in a yacht. I discovered England. Or perhaps you could say rediscovered England. He said, I, I sought to be ten minutes in advance of the truth, you know, on the cutting edge and I realized I was 1,800 years behind it the time he was writing. His journey to orthodoxy, his journey to truth, was a a returning to where he started, A, a rediscovery of home, you might say. I mention that because as individuals and as a church, friends, we must constantly take the same journey. We must constantly come back to where we started. We must, as it were, constantly rediscover home. Not seeking to be 10 minutes in advance of the truth, but always coming back to the truth that is 2,000 years old. Not on the cutting edge theologically, not on the cutting edge of some new sexual ethic, but always rediscovering the old, old story of Jesus and his love, as the hymn puts it. And Here's why I say that this morning. Here's why that's so important this morning. We define ourselves, like we say on the front of that handout, we define ourselves as a gospel-centered community. Our vision is about glorifying God as a community of people built around the good news of Jesus Christ. The problem is that phrase, gospel-centered. It becomes so familiar, it loses its meaning. It can become rote. It becomes empty, almost. It can become, for us, meaningless. We can say it and repeat it, but we forget what it really means. This passage that Tiffany read, this passage on your handout, it gives us It gives us three reasons why we must take the same journey Chesterton did. Three reasons why we must rediscover home, you might say. Three reasons why we must always, friends, rediscover the old, old story. Here's the first. First, let us see the utter necessity of the gospel, this good news. The utter necessity of the gospel. The apostle says in verse 1, now, I would remind you, brothers and brothers and sisters, really, of the gospel, the good news. The good news I preach, notice, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He is saying, in effect, to this church, this good news defines the entirety of your existence, past, present, and... And future as individuals and as a church. It defines your past. You received this good news in a moment in time. It, he says, defines your present. You are at the present time standing, standing in this good news, and it defines your future. You are being saved by it. Notice the tense of the verb being saved because we are not all that we will be. Here's a great setup to the chapter. Corinthians, Grace Church. This is the message that defines the entirety of your existence. Past, present, and future. Unless, he says. Unless you believed in vain. Unless you shift from the utter necessity of this message. You see, the Corinthian church, they were were sailing off course like that English yachtsman. Some were denying the future physical resurrection of believers in Jesus, which has real implications for the good news of Jesus itself. And so the apostle reminds them first here of the utter necessity. This was the one message you received from me, the central message you received. Without this message, you are not Christians and you are not a church. This is the message you stand in right now before God, defining your presence. And this is the message by which, by which you will be saved, by which you will experience all God has for you and bring you into his presence forever. Unless, he says, you believed in vain. He's calling them back, isn't he? kind of rediscover home. He's calling them back to rediscover the old, old story. The message that defines their existence and, friends, defines yours and mine and ours. So let's draw an implication of that or from that. Here's an implication. We must, friends, we must prioritize this gospel over everything else. Here's an implication for us as a gospel-centered community. We must prioritize this gospel over everything else. That's true for us individually, and it's true for us as a church. Gospel-centered churches are made up of gospel-centered members. We need this individually and as a church to prioritize this good news over everything else. But friends, can it be so easy can't it be so easy to prioritize other things to make them first? The matter of first importance to us. And for instance, let me just run a few examples. We, we have, and I think this is a fine thing, we have as a body many different, different preferences on many different issues. We have different preferences over style of worship music, which makes the, the challenge of our worship leaders... Uh, Interesting sometimes, I'm sure. We have different preferences over style of worship music, that's fine. We have different preferences over how we may educate our children at a given time, be it public school, private school, home school. We have different preferences over political issues and, and political candidates. We may have different preferences there. But none of those should get prioritized to the place of first importance. None of those preferences should take the place in priority of the gospel because when that happens, we redefine our unity together. When when any preference becomes our greatest priority, then if you share that preference, you're really in. You fit. You belong. You like the same style of music. You educate in the same way. You have the same political preferences. Come on in. You fit right in. Place for you. But if you don't share that preference, well, well, I, I don't know if this is a place for you. You don't like the music we like. You don't educate the way we educate. You don't vote the way we vote. See what happens? This is the the message that is of utter necessity friends to our unity, it must be prioritized over everything else or think about think about the truths we hold dear there are important truths that that I teach, that we teach and that I love I I personally I love reformed theology, I love the fact that God saves by his sovereign grace to his glory. I love our continuationist convictions that we believe the Holy Spirit is at work today as he was in the first century. I believe in our baptistic practices and polity, our our governance. But our greatest priority, I want you to know this, our greatest priority would not be any of those distinctives. You can be a member here and not agree on those issues. As long as you hold your disagreement in a a way that preserves our unity together, that's fine. Because there's one truth of utter necessity, and that's the gospel. We prioritize that over every other good thing. Or think about this as relates to our fellowship. I love the fact that we are very different people here. You might not realize this. You might look at us and say, what a homogenous group. Actually look closely. We are people of, of very different age situations, multi-generational church, so glad for that. Many different seasons of life, many different economic situations. And it can be tempting to say, well, I can't really have fellowship with them. You know, they're, they're much older than me. or or they're much younger than me, Or, or they have kids and I don't, or I have kids and they don't, and so we can't really have fellowship together. Now, those are certainly significant differences, perhaps, at times. But friends, listen, in our fellowship, we must prioritize this one truth of utter necessity. What joins us together is the message we have received. What joins us together in our fellowship is what we stand in right now. What joins us together in our fellowship is what we are being saved by, that good news. We must prioritize this gospel over everything else. That's the first way we're called back to the old, old story. And then the apostle. The apostle explains the the utter necessity of the gospel, secondly with the essential content of the gospel. Secondly, the essential content of the gospel. Look at what he says now in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, For, so let me explain to you what I just said. Here's a logical basis for it. For, I delivered to you, as of first importance, the priority, what I also received. He is saying, in effect, I was a faithful Messenger. I was a faithful courier of what I had received myself, this prioritized message. It is kind of like I imagined the Amazon delivery vans you see everywhere now. Do you see those gray vans everywhere? Don't you think Amazon is amazing this way? If you use Amazon Prime, you get your book the next day, perhaps. Now, Here's the thing for the delivery person. They they are not supposed to change what's in the package, right? You order your favorite book. The Amazon Prime delivery person is not allowed to open the package and go, you know, this book is garbage. You're going to like a different book better and put a different book in that package and give it to you. That's not what they're allowed to do. Their job is faithfully deliver the package. That's what the apostle is saying. I faithfully delivered the package I received Here's the package in the rest of the verse. Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. There's the package. And that, friends, is the heart of the gospel. A pastor friend of mine named Mike Bulmore tells a story of, I think it was his parents who had him put up his hand like this, and they taught him, Christ died for our sins. I taught my kids the same way. Five fingers, kids. Here's the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Now, that's not the entirety of the gospel. It involves Jesus' birth, his life. His death, His resurrection, His ascension. It's certainly at His coming return. But here's the heart of the gospel. And that has, friends, essential content. Essential theological content, essential personal content, and essential historical content. Let me explain. For instance, theologically, Theologically, we must know who this Christ is, who died. You must know who he is. You must know that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully divine. One person, two natures. Now that is beyond our full comprehension. If you can explain that to me later, please do. The best the church has done is at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. They said, quote, the only begotten, Jesus, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. That's the best we can do. 2,000 years. We can tell you what didn't happen. But if you diminish any of that theological content, you lose the gospel. This theological content. It has personal content, essential personal content. That person, fully God and fully man, obeyed in all the ways we never could and then died for our sins. The primary issue dealt with by the gospel is a very personal issue called sin, our sin against God. Now I have had over the years, very well-meaning, large-hearted people tell me to have the gospel itself, the gospel itself includes things like racial reconciliation today or social justice today. That is part of that gospel. And I would say with all love, there are huge gospel implications for racial reconciliation, without a doubt. And there are huge gospel implications for loving your neighbor, honoring the image of God, addressing societal injustice, caring for the poor and needy, to be sure. And friends, we must not neglect those implications. We must not ignore those implications. But the gospel proper, this is my point, the gospel itself deals with this very personal problem of sin against God, yours and mine, leading to alienation from God and eternal condemnation by God under his justified wrath. The gospel has this essential personal content, and thirdly, it has essential historical content essential historical content. Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, crucified under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate, crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, a real place and a real time. He rose from the dead on the third day as provable as any event from history. In fact, in verses 5 through 8, which we won't look at right now, in verses 5 through 8, the Apostle starts to detail for the Corinthians various resurrection appearances of Jesus after he, of course, rose from the dead. And he says to them, you, look, some of those witnesses are still alive. You can go ask them, Corinthians. Go seek them out yourself. They were there. They saw him. Jesus really did rise from the dead at a real place, a real time in history. That's the essential content of this good news, theological, personal, historical, that the Apostle says, I faithfully delivered to you. What's the implication for us? Well, certainly as individuals, you must be clear on this message. And if you've yet to believe this message, I would, oh friend, I would urge you to do so. Nothing is more important than you leave here believing on Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God. But let's think of one as a church for us, an implication for us as a church. I think here's one, that we must measure our faithfulness as a church by the gospel. We must measure our faithfulness as a church by the gospel. I know there can be lots of ups and downs in church life. We've been here about seven years as a church. Experienced some ups and downs. New friends come, sometimes good friends move away. Sometimes the, the budget is overflowing, sometimes the money is tight. Sometimes you share the gospel and someone believes. And sometimes someone who professed faith seems to wander away. There are lots of ups and downs in church life, but I was really encouraged by something recently. I I discovered something recently. Not really. I was reading in Revelation 2 and 3 how Jesus addresses the seven churches there in Revelation. And it struck me. What Jesus commends is faithfulness. It struck me what he is looking for and what he rebukes people about in those churches. And I think it's three main issues you could summarize it. Number one, keep your love for God. Number two, persevere in persecution. And one other, doctrinal fidelity. Doctrinal faithfulness. And it struck me that Jesus doesn't measure their faithfulness by any other measurement in that passage. He doesn't doesn't measure their faithfulness by the church size or the number of conversions or the size of the budget. None of those seem to define faithfulness in the eyes of the Savior there. Instead, it seems he just expects us to be like Paul. Faithful couriers. Faithful Amazon Prime delivery person. Here's the package I received. I've preserved it. I've protected it. I've cherished it. And I've shared it with you. I've proclaimed it. That's what he's expecting of us. I don't know how you define faithfulness for grace, church. I don't think it gets any bigger than that. I watched recently the, the interview with Grammy-nominated artist Lisa Gungor with the Gungors. They wrote some very popular worship music. Um, she described how she has drifted from the Christian faith. She and her husband, I think they wrote some, some very popular songs. They were hired by a, a megachurch in Michigan. She talks about a very large church, which is fine, about 10,000 people. And she said at that time, she and her husband were trying to to become pregnant, and, and that wasn't happening. And people were saying to them, quote, just believe, and it will happen. Just believe, Lisa Gungor, and it will happen. And then she says, she realizes in hindsight, my faith was a transaction. If you were, quote, good enough, if you prayed enough, If you believed enough, then you got blessings from God, a baby, a good life, whatever you want. And it's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic because, number one, it does not appear she was clear on the gospel she seems to be rejecting. And it's tragic, number two, because it does not seem her church was clear on the same gospel. This is how we must define faithfulness. Th- th- this is the yardstick God is using in part. In part. Are we being faithful delivery people? Preserving, protecting, cherishing, and declaring this good news. That's the essential content. One last thing, briefly. Third, all this leads very personally for Paul the transforming power of the gospel, the transforming power of this good news. The apostle is, he's basically having to defend his apostleship to the Corinthians, and he references his own apostleship as one, quote, untimely born in verse 8, meaning he became an apostle outside the normal means of Jesus appointing people as an apostle. He was busy persecuting Christians. He was knocked off his horse. He was blinded by a light from heaven. He heard an audible voice of the risen Christ saying, What the heck are you doing, slicko? Knock it off. Not the normal means. I paraphrase a little bit Jesus' words. And now the apostle says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, notice, persecuted. I persecuted the church of God. Now notice this verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, through this good news, I am what I am. And his grace toward me, his unmerited favor, his unearned favor toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them, which is a really interesting statement. There's no false humility in this guy, right? I worked harder than all the other apostles. But then quickly add, No, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What's an implication, friends? He said it was God's grace, God's favor through this good news that had such a transforming effect that he would go from persecutor to a tireless apostle? What's an implication? Well, I think as individuals, it would be a nice exercise tomorrow morning to get up and say, first of all, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That'd be a good practice. But as a church, I think here's an implication. We must fuel, friends, our ministry with the gospel. We must fuel our ministry with the gospel. Why do I say that? I say that because as Americans, we are inherently pragmatic. We are always looking for what, quote unquote, works. And if the numbers aren't going up in some way, more people in the seats, more numbers in the budget, if we can't quantify growth somehow, then we look for other solutions that will, quote unquote, work. And what I'm saying is we already have the fuel for our ministry that quote-unquote works. It takes persecutors and makes them tireless apostles. It takes enemies of God and makes us children of God. And if this good news can so transform people, what else should Grace Church use for our ministry? If this good news can so transform people, what else should we rely on? What other fuel should we hope in for our parenting, for our marriages, for our single adults, for our youth ministry? What else else should we try to apply in our home groups together when we gather? What else should we hope in for our evangelism and outreach? What else should thrill our souls when we gather for worship on Sundays? If but only this transforming gospel. As a church, you see, as a church, I hope this is not discouraging for you. We aim to be more of the tortoise than the hare in the classic fable. You know the story. The overconfident rabbit challenges all the other animals to a race, and the tortoise takes him up on it. And off they go. And the rabbit dashes so far ahead, he takes a nap. And while the hare sleeps, the tortoise faithfully plods on. And due to his faithful plodding, the tortoise crosses the finish line first in a great upset. Mm -hmm. And the moral of the story, of course, is slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. I think it's a pretty good picture of gospel ministry. I think that's what we're after. But we're happy when God comes down in power and does extraordinary things in seconds. We're happy for that. But generally, normally, gospel ministry is about faithfulness over the long haul, faithfully plodding, faithfully plodding forward. But friends, as we do so, this is my point, God will work powerfully by his grace through the gospel. Are you seeing now why we must always keep coming back home? Seeing now we might, why we must always rediscover, as it were, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Friends, this is our vision together. To be a people built around that good news. Glorifying God, honoring God. With gospel-centered members joined together on a gospel-centered mission. May God do that for His glory in our midst. Now, I want to make a little transition.